When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This is tantamount to stalking now. People are saying, just leave us alone. Good grief, once a week's enough. Here we are again. I'm, I laid out my stall. I said I'll be back to preview each round of the Masters. And sure enough, semi-finals are with us. And I'm going to be looking ahead to them and looking back at the quarterfinals. It's been another eventful few days. First thing to say is hello to all the listeners that we have in the Netherlands. And I say that because uh, the podcast... Uh, you know, not that I monitor the charts closely, but uh, I, the podcast entered the Apple Sports podca- Podcast chart in the Netherlands at a lofty position, 186. Now, you might say, you may be listening to that thinking, that ain't any good. Well, Snooker Tour, their podcast entered at 197. So we were 11 places higher than them. That's a fact. Um, bearing in mind, this podcast has uh, no budget, no promotion, no big name guests, and indeed is no good. <laughs> Still, in the Netherlands, for some reason, uh, they love us. I'll gloss over all the other territories. But anyway, thank you for listening, wherever you are. And uh, it's been a fascinating few days, of course, at the Masters. And uh, I'm going to look back shortly. But we have had some, some more emails flooding in. Uh, all sorts of things. There's no doubt there's these big events. You get more general interest in the game. And I think uh, the audiences have spoken for themselves. Ronnie O'Sullivan, you had to go at the venue. He said the venue was no good. Um, he made one absurd statement. He said, "He said, talking about all the all the sort of things that were wrong with it." He said, "You have to go through a car park where there are bins." Well, would he rather all the rubbish was on the floor? I mean, <laughs> I think if if you're complaining about bins, then that's a slightly strange thing. Albert Manus has ever uh, put it the best. He, he was asked about this on Eurosport, and he said, it, it, "It's no different, really, to any other venue, in as much as backstage is never really any good because it's backstage. It's not supposed to be." Public buildings and, and events for the public are public-facing, so all the facilities, you know, are aimed at them. Um, and backstage, you sort of have to make do. And also, Solomon, in particular, because he, he, he's coming from home, he's not actually spending that long in the venue. I mean, we've already established he's not playing at night unless he gets to the final on Sunday, so he's not really there that long anyway. Um, but anyway, he had his say. I, th- I think it kind of backfired. I, th- I saw even sort of O'Sullivan fans were kind of not really sure about it. But in general, it's been a great week, and we've had some... I'll rattle through these emails. It won't be as long as uh, the last podcast, because, you know, 
we uh, we need to get going on this. People have only got so much time to listen. But Lars, our dear friend Lars Johansson in Canada, now of course I met Lars at the UK Championship, came over to York. <clears throat> he says, thanks as always for keeping the podcast going, even though you're very busy with commentating. I'm currently sitting at work in my office, watching Selby v Milkins on the tablet. You say you're at work. You say, <laughs> anyway, he says, Selby's off to a good start. Hopefully he gets to lift another Masters trophy in a few days' time. Only time will tell. Well, of course, Lars did uh, did hope for that at the um, at the UK Championship. So I was thinking, I hear more and more chatter about adding new stops to the World Snooker Tour, which in itself is great to hear. I think the tour is a bit too UK and China-centric, and certainly there's room to add new locations. But what worries me is that there's some talk about a Saudi Arabia stop, which I think is not the right way to go. Classic sports washing, if you ask me. Precious few players from that region of the world. It seems like money is dictating more than sport, which I suppose is the way of the world, unfortunately. Hope instead they can add one or two more stops in Central Europe. Belgium, I think, would make sense for obvious reasons. Germany works well. Are there other European nations with solid snooker traditions that could be an option? Or maybe try Thailand as an alternative to adding further China tournaments. Either way, snooker is alive and well. I look forward to what the next few months will offer. Well, I mean, on the Saudi thing, I mean, we, we haven't had any official news, but, uh, you know, Barry Hearn himself has made a lot of noises about it may happen. I think I'll just part that to one side and talk about, about it if it if it is announced, because there'll be a lot to say, I'm sure, and a lot of opinions. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of places uh, where snooker's popular, but there's, as I said before, there's a difference between it being popular and actually the, being the money on the ground to put on tournaments. And, and by tournaments, we normally mean ranking tournaments, which, of course, costs a lot, but... Um, Watch this space, I guess. We've obviously not got the calendar yet for next season, but let's just see what transpires. I'd have thought Belgium, you may mention it, obviously, with Luca Brussel, you know, would have been a place that would have been looked at for sure. But uh, as it stands, we, we ain't going back there yet. Will Britton writes, as always, I'm enjoying the coverage. You're probably the wrong person to ask this, but what's your take on World Snooker Tour's refund policy? I was very lucky to purchase tickets last January for today's session. Mark Allen v John Higgins at the time of sending this email. Sadly, though, I was unable to attend due to a family emergency and I felt really bad about potentially losing the opportunity of a fan to see a live snooker event, especially if you spot the empty seats I was supposed to be in. That probably doesn't make much sense, but I hope you understand what I mean. I tried to contact WST about this, but as of yet, I've had no further, I've heard no further. And it looks increasingly unlikely I will. I know it was different during COVID days, but surely they could make except that they could there could be exemptions made in these kind of situations. Hopefully, I'll attend another event soon. Keep up the good work as always. Well, thanks, Will, and sorry you couldn't go. I mean, obviously, one of the issues is because the tickets go on sale so early. You know, you, 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 with all best intentions, you're going to go, but then maybe something will happen at the time, and and like you say, the illness or family emergency, whatever. I guess the problem is because of that. The, the danger is that there'd actually be a lot of people who can't go and, and maybe the refunds, you know, would be, would come to a lot of money in that case. I don't actually have the official refund policy in front of me, so I can only go on what you're telling me. I think if you've contacted them, they should definitely reply and hopefully they will get back to you, although obviously it's a bit late for, for this event. But I'm sorry you couldn't go. I do want to rattle through these quickly because I don't want to be here too long. Colm and people will be saying, well, we don't need to be either. So Colm Harmon. Colm here in Dublin, love the podcast, first time email sender. Thank you. He says, thanks for the superb contribution you make to the sport on many fronts. It's kind of you, thank you. He says, bit of a left field question, but perhaps your memory is better than mine. I vaguely remember referees calling out the score in the frame after each break from a player. He would then call out the frame score after each frame. As I'm 46, I guess this memory is from the mid-80s. Perhaps before the days of electric scoreboards or TVs in the arenas. Was this an aspect of the game back then, or a figment of my imagination? 
No, it did happen, yeah. I mean, it used to be the scoreboards were a bit different in those days because um, they would only add... If a player was on the break, the actual overall score wouldn't update until the break was over. So say you came to the table, you're 40-0 in front already. You make a break of 30. It will still it will say still say 40 as your score, and then have underneath the break would be 30. But it wouldn't say 70, which it would now, of course. So in the old days, the, ref, the, the players used to have to add it up themselves. Uh, and the referee, yeah, the referees would call out the frame scores. Very loud voice, some of those people. The Jim Thorpes, John Smythe, all those guys. They would they would absolutely holler the scores. Um, but less need for that now because there's so many scoreboards. I mean, obviously, we, we've had a few moments this season where the scoreboards are broken down. But in general, you know, wherever you are in the arena, you can see the score. And that includes the players as well, of course. But you're quite right to, in, in remembering that. It did happen. Brian McGovern, he says, I'm just writing in relation to the above, which is colourblind players. I mentioned in a conversation that Mark Williams is colourblind. Are there any other players that are colourblind? Hopefully you can answer this. Well, Brian, um, I believe Mark Allen, uh, Marco Fu was one I remember, Peter Ebden, so they're the main ones I remember. It seems odd, I know, but when we say colourblind, what we really mean is it's the brown, really. The brown amongst the reds could cause an issue. Certainly Mark Williams has had that, that issue and, and has had to ask referees at times, you know, where the brown is, which ball it is. I've seen Peter Ebden pop two reds in a row before now, thinking one was the brown. So they're the main people. Mark Williams is probably the most uh, the most well-known, but, uh, you know, it's not stopped him, obviously, being an all-time great. And we move on to Morgan Nock. He says, I love the pod, as always. I saw you tweet a few weeks ago about Dominic Dale having won a match in each of the first ten ranking events this season. After invoking the commentator's curse, this swiftly came to an end, of course, as Dale came unstuck 5-0 against Lu Hongyu at the German Masters Qualifier. A remarkable achievement, uh, though I'm not sure I need to hear him sing another song, as you suggested. Anyway, it got me thinking whether winning one match at each event would be enough for a player, one who doesn't benefit from any seeding, to remain on tour on the one-year list, or alternatively, in how many tournaments would said player need to win one match to do the same? On another podcast, I might ask, or even expect the host to answer the question for me, However, this is the Snooker Scene podcast, so I did it myself, and the results are as follows. OK, so Morgan has no faith, quite rightly, in me bothering to look this up, so he's done it himself. So he says, winning one match at every Open, that's a 1-8 ranking event this season, would help the player to amass 43,500. Although, please note, this excludes the Championship League. Question one. Yes, winning one match at each tournament through the season would be enough to stay on tour. Based on last season's rankings, the new player would be ranked 49th on the one-year list, would have been the second placed of the top four not already qualified who earn a two-year tour card. Question two, Hamad Mir was the fourth of the top four not already qualified players last season with 26,500. To exceed this figure, as few as seven first-round wins are required. Specifically, the more valuable first-round or qualifying round wins at the World Championship, World Open, International Championship, Wuhan Open and any of the three European Masters, German Masters, British Open, Home Nations events or the UK Championship. If there's anywhere on earth people would enjoy this information, it's here. Well, listen, in the Netherlands, they're all over this. Don't worry about that. So thank you very much. We're going to move on very quickly, though, to the Master. because we've had the quarterfinals. Um, I should say, the first round predictions from me, I got five right and three wrong, OK? Now, the quarterfinals, we started with uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan against Barry Hawkins. I tipped Ronnie, as I think most people did there. He could have lost. Barry Hawkins, you know, had chances... It's a different thing playing Ronnie O'Sullivan, and that's just a fact. It's a different atmosphere, it's a different challenge, it means a lot to beat him, and he didn't beat him. And I think Hawkins will reflect that was a chance gone. I didn't think O'Sullivan was terrible, but he, 
you know, by his very high standards, he wasn't at his best, but he found a way to win, and, you know, Bob's your uncle, he did. In the evening, Sean Murphy against Jack Lazowski. I thought Murphy started very strongly, looked confident. Lazowski didn't look as confident as he had done um, in his first round win over Luke Brissell. Of course, Murphy had beaten Zhang Ander. Sean Murphy queued very well. He wasn't put under as much pressure maybe as he could have been until towards the end, where it, cause it could have gone 5-4. He ended up on the black in frame nine. Murphy potted a great black. There was a lot of chat about Jack Lazowski afterwards, of course, still looking for a first title. And Andrew Newman has written in about this. Andrew says, I've been enjoying the Masters on TV, Eurosport, of course. Thursday night, I was excited to watch the Murphy-Lazowski match. Two players with an attacking style and silky smooth cue actions. I'll admit, I was rooting for a Lazowski win as he's such a good player to watch. I'm desperate for him to finally break through. Of course, it didn't work out that way and left me wondering what's missing from Lazowski's game. He has all the shots. At his best, he looks like a left-handed Ronnie O'Sullivan who can just destroy even the very best opponents. But at his worst, he's frustrating to watch. I think sometimes he's too nice a guy and lacks a killer instinct. I feel like his competitive drive isn't up there with the other top players. And sometimes I think he's almost too talented with the cue and doesn't do some of the percentage shots, grinding players, being consistently difficult to beat, that is a must in tournaments, even shorter form tournaments other than the World Championship. In short, proper match play. I'm not sure it's right for spectators to have particular expectations of players. Is it fair to criticise him like this, or should I just enjoy watching him for the times he reels off a string of centuries like it's the easiest thing in the world, even if he then goes out with a soft defeat in the next round? Cheers, as always, for the podcast. Well, thank you, Andrew. Um, there's frustration, I think, within the sort of snooker community, the fan community, pundits, and indeed his fellow players, that Jack Lazowski has not quite done it yet in terms of winning a tournament. I'm loath to... I'm not going to criticise him because, you know, he's a wonderful talent. Um, he's done really well in his career uh, to be in the top 16. And and I like the guy, you know, Jack, you can't dislike Jack. But I do feel, to help him maybe, he could be do wor- a lot worse than to watch back the discussion in the Eurosport studio after the match. Alan McManus, again, was bang on the money, I think, in what he was saying. And I think, for me, it boils down to this. I think sometimes... In a pressure situation, Lazowski will rush into a shot. He'll rush into maybe trying to knock knock one in that's low percentage, rather than, as Alan was saying, wait a couple of shots, play a couple of safeties that buy you some time, get involved, get down in the weeds. I think Jack, and maybe it's a kind of slight fear thing, thinks I've got to play the shot, and if I get it, fine, I mean, I might win the frame. If I don't get it, I might lose the frame, but at least it'll be over quickly one way or the other. Um, the problem with that is, of course, quite often it goes the wrong way. Um, but the only reason people talk like this, and your email, Andrew, is an example of this, the only reason they talk like this is because they everyone recognises how good he is. That's the thing. He's so good, hits the ball so beautifully, can play beautifully. Um, people want it for him. They want success for him, and they're disappointed when he doesn't get it. So I hope that Jack doesn't, in hearing some of the, what sounds like criticism, sort of take it to heart, because it's well meant from people, people in the sport who I know just want him to be successful. And of course he is successful in terms of winning titles. That's the next step, obviously. It's the last piece in the puzzle. So anyway, he didn't get the job done against Sean Murphy. So O'Sullivan Murphy, let's look at that one. Um, the head-to-head 13-3 to O'Sullivan. They haven't played for five years on the tour, so it's been a long time. Murphy's beaten him, of course, in the Champion of Champions final. But O'Sullivan usually beats him... It's a bit like the Hawkins match, you know, Murphy's got to take the game to him. And I think he can. I think he can. I think 
it, this is a great chance. It's it's about converting that chance. I'm actually going to tip Sean Murphy here. Ronnie O'Sullivan's only ever lost one semi-final at the Masters, so he's been in 13 finals uh, and 14 semi-finals prior. And he's only ever lost one semi-final, so normally he goes all the way, but. Just based on what we've seen this week, I think Murphy arguably has played slightly better. He's confident again, Murphy. He, he said that he is. He's speeded up. He's been more instinctive. He's playing the first shot he sees. He's being more confident in himself. So why not? Why not tip him? Um, but obviously, if Ronnie wins this and wins the whole event, that's no great shock. But it's a chance, definitely, if Murphy can handle the pressure of playing O'Sullivan. That's, that's, that's the thing. And that's, that's what people find difficult, isn't it? Uh, Friday afternoon, we saw a wonderful quarter-final between uh, Ali Carter and Judd Trump. Let the record show I also tipped uh, Ali Carter in this. So, I think I, I got... The, well, I, did, I tipped Murphy, I think, as well. Did I against Lazare? I can't even remember now. I think I did. Uh, so, that's three out of three so far. Um, this was a mad match. Match of the tournament, really, so far. Carter, I thought, looked really good early on. Played well. 4-2... Uh, Made all the running. Trump, of course, lost that to sixth frame. He missed the brown. Made a great century. 1-2-9. Could have been a 1-4-2. Missed the pink. And then a crazy eighth frame um, to make it 4-4. And then you think, well, I mean, he had that fluke snooker on the green with the brown next to it. Nearly fluked the green. Covered it with the brown. All of that. Carter's composure did go. And he admitted that himself. Suddenly Trump's 5-4 up. In the balls to win. Misses match ball red. Carter makes a great clearance, wins the decider. It was a fantastic match. All the mistakes and drama and, and, and edginess and tension just add to the, the viewing experience. The crowd were living every shot. It was brilliant. And uh, credit to Carter, you know, it's a big win for him. He's not played in the Masters for, for four years. Uh, he was my sort of outsider as such to follow, and he's made it all the way to the semi-finals. So next up, Mark Selby against Mark Allen. And of course, Mark Allen made a maximum in the third frame, uh, the second of the week. It's amazing to think it's the 50th Masters coming into this week. We'd only had three. Ding Jun, we made his on Monday. Now Mark Allen has made his. It was a fantastic break, absolutely brilliant. Several key shots along the way. Obviously, the yellow was tough. The last black, the cutback. You need guts to be able to knock those in under the pressure. And he did. And now, of course, this triple crown bonus that, that's going on. Him and Ding, you know, they're two players who you could definitely see making one at the Crucible. Um... I mean, it's easier said than done. Jusser as well, of course, he made one, so he's could, he could do the same, maybe in World Qualifying. In a way, that would be the funniest if he did it in a, on an anonymous match on Table 4 somewhere on a Tuesday morning. But anyway, uh, the £147,000 bonus will be theirs if they can make another one. But Mark Allen... Uh, well, we've had an email hot off the press already on this. This is, uh, see, this is interactive. Uh, Stephen and Michelle in Glasgow, the fifth 147 in 50 years of the Masters. Superbly orchestrated by Allen... He really had to work for it. Where does that 147 rank for you overall, considering the venue and profile of the event? And to think with his first shot, the next frame, he misses a red from ball and pots the cue ball. The snooker gods have a wicked sense of humour. As a right on Friday evening, this tournament has offered everything so far, from pesky flies and a wasp hitching a ride on Trump's waistcoat during a high break, to a teary-eyed and gutted Higgins, much to our dismay, and the captain tenaciously triumphing over Trump. What a weekend ahead. If Selby overcomes Allen, we think he'll go the way. And then there's a PS as well. Uh, Sean Murphy wonders how many times a player goes on to lose the next frame after achieving a maximum, perhaps due to their adrenaline still running high, which happened to have any stats or inclination. I don't have the exact, exact stats, but it's certainly not unheard of. In fact, in the uh, the first two 147s in the Masters, Kirk Stevens, uh, he made one 
what was actually the penultimate frame against Jimmy White. Jimmy made a century to win it. Uh, when Ding made one in the next frame, Anthony Hamilton made a century. Marco Fu, when he uh, when he made his, he actually made a century himself in the next frame. And then Ding this week, he uh, lost the next frame to O'Sullivan to a century. And of course, Mark Allen lost the next frame to Mark Selby. In terms of where it ranks, it's hard to say, obviously. It's been 196 now. They're all good, but I do think the ones made in the big tournaments under the pressure... There's nothing special about them, and, and yeah, it was a it was a terrific break. He's third in competition. Um, he'll remember that, you know, regardless of the result or anything else. He'll remember that for a long, long time doing it in a tournament like this. I guess the next thing is, excuse me, <coughs> it's the other podcast would edit that out, but I've left it in that cough. The next um, question is who can who can become the first person to make a maximum breaks in the three triple crown tournaments? It's all about the triple crown, as we know. And, of course, Ding has made two now in the Masters and also he's made uh, at least one in the UK Championship. Mark Allen made one in the 2016 UK Championship and now in the Masters. So can he make one at the Crucible? And that would be that would be something, wouldn't it? No extra prize other than the bonus for doing all, all three. But uh, anyway, it was a great break, great for the crowd. I always think the, the people that come along, you know, it's great for them to see it live. Most of them probably never seen one in the flesh before. It's something, the first thing you'll mention when you go home to your significant others or your friends tomorrow. Oh, I was there last night. I saw the maximum. Fantastic. Anyway, it's late now, so let's get on with it. Mark Allen, 165. He bought a great brown in the decider. It was a good little break that he made to win it. 4-1 uh, down, fought back. It wasn't a great game, but it was dramatic. And so many people stayed there until after midnight. So fair play to them, fair play to him. Mark Selby with my tip. He's out. Um, <laughs> so we've got Mark Allen against Ali Carter. I think with Alan's toughness and general kind of attitude now, will to win, and the fact he is winning, I've got to kind of go with him. So Sean Murphy against Mark Allen, that'll be the Masters final. Or will it? It might not be. We'll find out on Sunday, and we will return on Sunday to look ahead to the final. Um, but that's it. It's been a thrilling Friday at the Masters, and uh, just two days left to decide the winner. We'll be back on Sunday. Uh, hello again to everyone in the Netherlands, and as we always say, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.